Um, so the seminar today is going to be split into three sections, um, and each section will aim to look at marriage from uh, a different angle. Um, so firstly, I, th- I think the best place to start is to look at marriage in the Bible. Uh, and I'll be taking that seminar. My name's Tim Houston, and I work for an organisation called CARE, which stands for Christian Action research and education, and we are passionate about having a voice for love and and truth to our elected representatives in Stormont and across the rest of the UK. And we're going to follow that section on by looking at how we actually live out our marriages in a day-to-day basis in the most effective way to glorify God. And we're so pleased to have Michael and Hilary Perrett with us today, they are the founders of Christian Guidelines, and they've got many years of wisdom in guiding um, married people to, to live out marriage in the best way possible. So they're going to give us an insight from their experience and how to do that. Um, Michael and Hillary have actually written a book. Um, it's called the, the Highway Code for Marriage. It's, it's been reprinted many times, and this is the latest edition. Uh, and we have this in the, the Ten of Those bookstore. Um, at the back of the missions area tent um, so if, if you like what they say today and you feel emboldened to, to go further in pursuing the best for your marriage I really recommend you pick up this book at the bookstall and, and have a read uh, and following on from that we're going to look at marriage in the public square uh, and covering that section we have David Smith um, from Evangelical Alliance, and we're delighted to, to hear from him as well. Um, you'll see on the table at your right, uh, as you leave, if you leave by this door, um, there are some resources there. There's a leaflet on care, and there's also a sign-up sheet. Um, if you would like to receive emails or mailings from us, that's so that we can be united in, in the pursuit of glorifying God in our government, and we would love you to pray with us and to come along and join us at any of our events, so please do sign up for that. And there's also a leaflet for a Care for the Family conference called Faith in the Family, um, which is kind of following on um, from topics that we're going to cover here today. Um, so I think that's all the announcements, so I'd just like to, to get stuck in. And we're just going to start um, by spending a short period of time looking at um, God's vision for marriage in the Bible. Uh, we only have about, about 15 minutes to look at this. Uh, and the question has crossed my mind, you know, what can we actually establish in 15 minutes when looking at such an important topic as marriage? And I, I feel that actually 15 minutes is a great amount of time because when, when we're short on time, it allows us to cut to the very core, to the very beating heart of what marriage actually is. And, and two kind of facets of marriage in the Bible, which I really just want to zoom in on, are God's desire for oneness and unity in marriage, and God's desire for marriage to represent or reflect the relationship of Jesus and his church. So, um, we're not going to go into an extensive biblical study of marriage today, but what I hope this serves to do is is to give you a passion in your own time to to really dig deep into scripture and to look further at what God has to say. So, um, when thinking about marriage, the first place we need to turn to is Genesis. Um, Genesis, it's a fantastic book. 
for seeking God-ordained patterns of how we are to live in general. And it's no exception for marriage. And it's really the story of, of Adam and Eve in the first few books of Genesis, which serves to give us one of our richest glimpses from the Bible on what God intended marriage to be all about. Let's just read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So, the, the great theme, uh, and something which I want to highlight from the relationship of Adam and Eve as husband and wife, is God's desire for oneness and unity in the marriage relationship. Unity is something which is resonant throughout all scripture. God is passionate about the unity of his believers. Jesus prays for the unity of all believers. So it makes sense that in an intimate relationship such as marriage, that unity would be at the heart of his desire for that. The unity is exemplified by the origin of where he came from. Every other creature on earth, including man, was created from the dust of the earth. And up to this point, before Eve, God had labelled everything that he had made good. It's the ultimate seal of approval when God says that we are good. What was not good, however, was for man to be alone. So Adam searched through all the creatures that God had created to find a suitable companion, but none suitable could be found. And this was because it was in God's plan it was in God's will for the partner of a man to be someone unique with a very special and intimate connection. So Eve was made from Adam's rib and a special and intimate bond between man and woman was ordained on that day. And it surpassed the intimacy of that which would be possible between man and any other created creature that God had made. And it's great, it's, it's just such a joyous image to think about Adam's reaction to God's work in creating his companion from his own flesh. And it says a lot about his attitude towards his new wife. So when he sees his wife, Eve, for the first time, he exclaims, This is now bone of my bones. This is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This statement is filled with passion and deep love. I can imagine him seeing his wife for the first time and he's just filled with such joy as he shares with God in this moment of realising a deep connection with his new partner. 
And it's interesting when we look at the verses in the immediate aftermath of this statement of, of joy. Verses 24 and 25 say, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will be one flesh. It's interesting that it says at that point. So we firstly read about Adam's joy and intimacy with his new wife. For they had been ordained by God to share a special connection. And the very next verse tells us, For this reason will a man and woman unite in marriage. Our union as a husband and a wife must be marked by unity and love. And it's hard to to understate the importance of God's purposes in bringing a man and a woman together in marriage. This marriage of Adam and Eve happened in the Garden of Eden before the fall, before the earth was introduced to pain and suffering and hardship, to sin. God labelled the marriage good in an already perfect environment. That tells us something. It tells us that God has designed us as human beings to be in relationship from the very beginning. We were designed to be in community, in family. And when thinking about our marriage situation today in the church, it means that our motivation for preserving and supporting marriage in society shouldn't be coming from a place of retaliation against sin or as a response to the sin that we see in our world. It should be coming from a place of wanting to reflect God's original intention for mankind. The institution of marriage and our individual parts to play within that through modelling marriage to society should be undertaken with peace and joy in the knowledge that we were being who we are created to be. We are simply continuing in a pattern that God set in the Garden of Eden. So we shouldn't seek to promote a biblical view of marriage based on the challenges that we have today. We should seek to promote it because it reflects God's kingdom. There's a big difference in our motivation for doing that. A second key scripture that I want to highlight in echoing this call for a marriage to reflect God's glory can be found in Ephesians 5. It's a really well-known scripture, but it's something we have to come to. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives Submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for the body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. 
This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So we need to notice the amount of times that Paul compares the marriage relationship of the husband and the wife to that of God and his people. They are intricately connected. So Paul begins this text by addressing wives in the church. Um, So let's look a bit more specifically about what he says in that portion. The bulk of what he says when addressing wives is encouraging them to submit to their husbands as they do to the Lord. Now, the word submit, um, it brings with it pretty negative connotations in today's society. You know, there may be some of us here today who would disagree with Paul, um, who would call his notions of submission out of date, um, culturally offensive. There may be some people in society who would even go as far as calling Paul sexist by saying this, but we need to look at the definition of the word and whether this is what Paul actually meant um, and whether our perception of the word submit has changed over time. (coughs) Submission, as used in this context, means something totally different to the connotation it implies in today's society. As Christians, we have been freed from slavery and it's not the intention of Scripture to place a wife in a position of subservience to her husband. The notion of submission is also mentioned in Colossians and 1 Peter, among others, so it is something that we need to take seriously. The submission scripture speaks of is the recognition of a husband's leadership and responsibility before God. And far from being a role of silent resignation, It is one where a wife must learn from God and display his character toward her husband. Similarly to this, um, in Genesis, God says that he will make a helper suitable for Adam. And this again can be misconstrued um, to deem the wife's role in marriage by many in society as maybe less valuable or secondary. But a closer glance at scripture provides us with a different view of what this means. What God actually means by helper can be established by looking at other places in the Old Testament where this phrase is used. It's frequently used to describe God's relationship with Israel when he was to be their help. Jacob tells Joseph that God will help him. It's the same word. Moses calls one of his sons Lazar, meaning God my helper. In 1 Chronicles, we read that God helped the Levites. The same word is used in Psalm 28 to indicate encouragement. In Psalm 46 to indicate refuge. In Psalm 121 to indicate defense. So when we just take a moment to process the essence of what God has ordained a wife to be, it's not from a role of subservience or secondary value. It suggests a pivotal and active part of a unit which glorifies God's character. When Paul writes that the husband is the head of the wife, we must also be careful, as before, to understand what he actually means. The role of being the head of a wife is one of the most privileged responsibilities that God has given to men. It entails sacrifice and support. It implies responsibility for the welfare of another. 
They are to foster an environment where their wife is encouraged to be supported and blameless before Christ. And ultimately, both the role of the husband and the wife in marriage carries with it huge responsibility because of the likeness God designed marriage to have with his relationship with humanity. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read that a wife should be submissive to her husband if they don't believe the word so that he may be won over without words after seeing their actions. So when, as husbands and wives, we fully embrace the rules and responsibilities that God has given to ourselves in marriage, we are reflecting something much greater than ourselves. Whenever we strive to have marriages that are holy and pure and the best they can be, we will be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to our families, our friends, our co-workers, our colleagues, our society. And that's why we must pursue holiness and purity in marriage. So we can't explain exactly how this works, but as Paul says in Ephesians, God's vision for marriage is a profound mystery. But he is talking about Christ and the church. So we don't need to understand everything about marriage or its role exactly in society, but we do need to be obedient in honouring why we get married and how we live out our marriages. Because it's not about us, it's about Christ and his church and how other people see that. So we may feel here today that the institution of marriage has come under pressure in recent years, that it may be under pressure to, to change and shift into something different. But marriage has been under attack from the very beginning. Since the Garden of Eden, marriage has been under pressure to become something that it's not. But it has endured. And so will it endure today when we seek to live marriages that are obedient to God's word. And so I hope that served to give you a, a brief kind of glimpse in, into what scripture might mean in some ways for marriage. But I just want to encourage you that there is so much more in God's word to encourage us in our marriages and to give us passion to pursue holiness in our marriage. And I think something that's really important um, once we have a biblical basis for marriage is to get practical support for what those marriages look like in our day-to-day lives. So I'm just going to welcome up Michael and, and Hilary here and they're going to give us um, some wisdom on how we can do that. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, is this coming over to you up there and can you just check your voice honey? Hello, can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks very much indeed. Uh, we went into marriage without any marriage preparation whatsoever and I have to tell you we had our first argument before the wedding photographs were taken. And within a few months, I love you, had become I hate you. Uh, it really was a disastrous beginning, probably because we had no marriage preparation whatsoever. And let me give you a commercial, if I may. Christian Guidelines has 17 courses a year in Northern Ireland uh, for marriage preparation. Now, uh, what are some of the important things? First of all, the importance of communication. Communication is difficult enough with a busy couple, but you add three small children and it can be lost. We found that when our family was small, 
and uh, really we weren't doing anything except talking about the generalities, the practicalities of just functioning. So Michael bought a boat and put it on the kitchen door and banished the boys to the other side. There were threats of civil war and murder and various other things, but we didn't give in. And they got the message. Uh, Mum and Dad won some time on their own. And it really became a lifeline to our marriage. And we do it today. We have a gorgeous little (coughs) great-grandson of six. And he knows after a meal that he goes and plays and amuses himself while we have a cup of coffee together. So the communication is absolutely vital for every area of marriage. It's really the glue. It, it's top of the list, communication. And uh, uh, remember, you listen with your eyes as well as with your ears. Uh, except when you're driving. That's not to be advised. Uh, communication, affection. Affection, affection uh, verbally. Uh, I can well remember talking to uh, one couple... And there were times when she said to her husband, I love you, and he said, and vice versa. Uh, he altered that on occasion by saying ditto. Uh, can you imagine? Uh, verbally, physically. Uh, yes, affection uh, really for a woman is top of the list when it comes to communicating warmth. Uh, it's so important to know as a wife that at any time I can walk into a hug and a hug for hug's sake, that it doesn't necessarily lead to anything sexual. Just, he loves me, not just, he wants it. Uh, verbally, physically, uh, sexually. In uh, our little book, The Highway Code for Marriage, we put in ten steps to uh, good sex. And uh, one of them is, is time as a very important issue giving time for them. We, we only have so much energy and time in the day, so it's really a case of prioritizing. Do we keep enough in our energy tank for enjoying lovemaking? Uh, and that may entail saying no to something else, something good, but not the top priority. I suppose over the years we've done thousands of hours of counseling, and I can recall uh, one couple where things weren't going very well, and the wife uh, sexually was very uh, frustrated and disappointed. And I remember asking the husband, uh, how long does lovemaking take? He said, about five minutes. Uh, <laughs> that possibly was the explanation. And I was explaining that both physically and emotionally she needed more than that. Sometime later I met up with them and things were going better. And he explained, well... I put a clock on the bedroom wall and I keep one eye on the clock. I think he said it with his tongue in his cheek, at least I hope so. What about the um, guy who said that uh, for him it was like turning on a switch? Yeah, the, uh, for a, 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 a wife, it's... No, for him it was turning on the switch. For her it was more like an arm. Oh, yes. It takes time takes to warm up. Affection, respect. Um... Isn't it interesting that the things which attract and often entrance us before marriage can actually become very irritating when it's up close and personal? Things that amuse us when we're engaged can irritate, if not enrage, when it's on a daily basis. So uh, I had the great privilege of taking in-depth training on personality 
And I have to say that next to our Christian faith, it has made the biggest difference in our relationship. Uh, Michael often said, if we'd known then what we know now, we wouldn't have fought like cats for the first... Two years. Yeah. (laughs) Such a waste of time. Um, Faced with a new situation, uh, Michael's reference point is then and now. What happened before? My reaction is, we could do this, so the possibilities. So they're both important, but it's which way we tend to lean, tend to focus first. Michael prefers to focus on one thing at a time, and then fill in the picture a step at a time. My mind goes to the sweep, and then filling in the detail later. When it comes to objective or subjective, I had, would have tended to jump in with the subjective. And this cool-headed guy helped me to even that out. So really, once we learn to celebrate the differences instead of allowing them to be sound in the works, uh, even because really the core of decision-making is how we take in information and how we make decisions. That's where the core of life is. Uh, Michael would have preferred to put things off on a long finger, whereas finishing things is uh, up high in my life priorities. That's why he's written a book called Just Do It. (laughs) (laughs) Encouragement. Um, I don't think that I've ever met a marriage with serious problems, and certainly no marriage which is broken down, where a husband and wife were mutual encouragers of each other. Tremendously important. We can encourage in what ways? Well, in what we say, uh, what we we comment on. It's easy to pick on the things that go wrong, but the things that are nice, the things that look good, the things that our partner does well, um, there was a, an article written years ago called How Will You Know If I Don't Say It? So just to verbalise what's wrong and not um, be glad about and verbalise what, what is good both to each other and about each other. Cultivating an attitude of gratitude. I, I love that, an attitude of gratitude. Because it can colour everything, not just marriage. And the words, I'm proud of you, for a husband to say to his wife, I'm proud of you for this reason or or for that reason. And talking about encouragement, uh, I remember uh, a couple that I was helping. When I refer refer to people that I've counseled over the years, I deliberately choose examples 20 and 30 years ago so that they can't possibly be linked with anybody today. Here is a couple, and things weren't going well. He knew that flowers grew in the ground, but that was about all. But something I had said must have uh, got hit home, because his wife told me that she came into the house, and there she saw on the tabletop a vase with a solitary dandelion. And underneath was written, Will this do for starters? And she was absolutely thrilled. Encouragement. What about forgiveness? Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't say, Forgive if you feel like it, or forgive if you think it's deserved. He said, Forgive. One of the 
dangerous things about the area of forgiveness is that we can unforgive. And the word resentment, which is based in anger, actually means to feel back. So if we forgive and then start feeling back, we perpetuate the hurt. The problem is that if you uh, think about the hurt, if you think about it, then uh, you will feel it. Or if you talk about it, if you talk about it, then you'll think about it. And if you think about it, you'll feel it and you perpetuate the hurt. Uh, I, I well remember uh, one couple uh, where the wife had been unfaithful to her husband and he struggled and then finally he let it go. And he said to me, I felt all the pain <coughs> go away. But later he replayed the videos in his mind. He began to think about it again and to cast it up. And what happened? It all came back again because he had unforgiven. Forgiveness, what about unselfishness? I suppose time is probably our most valuable part of our life now and, and the scarcest for everybody. So a really firm grip on our use of time and a realistic one. If you're not sure what you're doing with time, make a pie chart and then have a look at it. But time for each other can get squashed out by, dare I say it, church, work, sport, housework, all sorts of things. So it's not something that's, excuse the connection, done and dusted. It's something we need to review all the time. Do you remember um, Hillary used to read a particular lady author whose name George Hare. Hare. Mm. And I used to think I would love reading history and philosophy and so on. I just think, how can any intelligent human being read stuff like that? So I ended up in, in hospital with um, <laughs> that. Uh, not uh, the surgeon who worked in that. He emigrated shortly afterwards to America. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, Hillary said, I'll bring you something like to read. And in came in April Lady, wasn't it? And she said, how did you find it? And I said, well, it's not bad. So next to come in was Frederica, wasn't that right? And I read that. And I have to confess, George Ed Hare has written 30 books, and I have read them all. <laughs> so I have learned that what I would dismiss uh, as rubbish, uh, I came to actually understand and to accept. And selfishness, what about loyalty? In the Bible, in Proverbs 7, it speaks about a man going down the street in the direction of her house and then of the sexual situation into which he fell. Uh, I recall one man, uh, and he told me there was one street down which he never went because it would mean passing a certain house. He said, just to make sure, I never go down any street anywhere near to that street. Somebody wisely said, avoid the situation as much as the sin itself. I think some of those are some of the wisest words which have ever been spoken. Avoid the situation as much as the sin itself. Now, a, a thing that has come up increasingly recently... Yeah. Please, please, I know you're much more the computer generation than we, we are, but our family has been torn apart by Facebook. 
So please, please be careful. Warn anybody that you know. Uh, uh, being careful about Facebook. There's actually a, a wonderful book called uh, Facebook on Your Marriage. You can look it up on the internet. Facebook on Your Marriage by um, Kapsky. Uh, brilliant. And divorce lawyers are increasingly quoting Facebook as one of the contributive factors in the breakdown of marriage. Now, obviously, Facebook is a wonderful invention and widely used, but there are dangers. That is the downside. And it's someone uh, that we knew well. And uh, a former girlfriend of more than 30 years in the past contacted a young man and started a relationship which ended in the breakdown of a, a marriage. And the damage, ripple, now, which goes, ripples of damage which go on to today. So those are uh, the things we think go to make a good marriage. And C, as you obviously noticed, stands for communication, A for affection, R for respect, E for encouragement, F for forgiveness, U for unselfishness, and L for loyalty. Careful. Uh, if you're not careful crossing the road, uh, you might be knocked down. If you're not careful about the tiles on the roof, uh, the rain may come in. Uh, and if you're not careful about your marriage relationship, it's possible uh, to lose it. Could we uh, conclude by saying if there's anything that sums up a good relationship, it's we not me. Before me. We before me is the best uh, uh, description of a good marriage. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Michael and Hillary. It was so interesting. And, um, yeah, sort of really something important to take home there. And I'd just like to invite David up. Um, so we, we've looked about marriage in the Bible, we've looked at how we can live our own marriages to glorify God, and we're now going to look at marriage in the wider society, and some things we need to be aware of there. Thanks so much. Um, firstly, apologies, my voice is a lot more nasally, and not quite so Radio 4 as Michael's, so uh, apologies, you'll have to listen to me for the next, the next wee while. And I love how Michael and Hillary can talk with such experience and wisdom and authority, uh, and my, my face only stopped rushing, so um, uh, no, it was just really, really helpful in such a cool manner. And I think we've almost had a, a, a marriage enrichment course just sitting there in the last 10 minutes, so thank you so much. Uh, and just in case my wife is listening, finally, I'm no expert in marriage, so let me just put that out there in case she listens back to this. Um, a number of challenges uh, in the public square around marriage, and of course, um, same-sex marriage comes to mind, maybe straight away, that's what I mean, the presenting issue, but and I will touch upon that, but actually I think there's uh, much greater um, issues that are, are affecting or challenging marriages, um, and, and I want to touch upon those or put those in the, in the right context. So I suppose first of all, and Michael and Hillary uh, and Tim have actually all touched upon some of these issues, so you'll see a correlation here, but um, the first I think is privatisation. Uh, this idea that we live in a a culture where really um, autonomy, uh, looking after yourself, is, is one of the most important things. Um, and we privatise marriage, which is a very public institution. Uh, we get married in public, we have witnesses, there's a public register of marriages, and yet it's become um, an incredibly privatised 
institution, maybe to the point where none of us feel comfortable about speaking to a friend or a colleague or a family member almost about their marriage. Um, the, the whole public witness, the whole public side of marriage, um, I think is, is under pressure. It's being privatised right down to an incredibly small vision of what marriage is about. And it's really just between two people and their love for each other. <coughs> so that's a central and a really important part to marriage. Um, but I think we, we see that in this, in this same-sex marriage issue. But much, much more broadly, marriage generally, I think we're in danger of privatising marriage right down to the relationship between just two people. And I think, therefore, our, our challenge is to articulate a vision for marriage that is much bigger than just two people. Uh, Christians obviously see covenantal um, benefits to marriage and we see that covenant that um, we've, we've talked about and that relationship between Christ and the church. Um, but, but marriage is a common grace. Uh, it predates the, the Christian church. It predates the state. Um, and, and as Tim said, we believe its origins lie right back at the, at the, at the start. Um, and it's a common good for the building of um, societies. And I think we need to get better at articulating that, that vision for society than it is good for holding generations together, extended families, um, and come on to the sort of social benefits as well of, of marriage. I suppose linked to that, so if we have privatisation and autonomy, um, there's consumerism there as well. We live in an incredibly consumeristic society, and it is almost like the, the, we, we don't even notice it anymore around us. Um, we have a whole other seminar in the church and consumerism, uh, but I won't go there today. Um, but we, we live in a society that's just completely um, shaped by our ability to choose all sorts of things. Lots of great choices out there, but again, we tend to then approach marriage in quite a similar way, that we get to choose the boundaries, we get to choose um, what that, that marriage will look like, and, and that's not the way marriage has historically worked. It's thinking long held as a commonly um, held understanding of what the boundaries and what um, the, the sort of community understanding of marriage is about. Um, Same-sex marriage, and I do want to touch upon, um, I suppose just to, to say that materially, biologically, I do believe that these, we're talking about different relationships. A man and a woman, or, or two women and two men, I, I do believe are, are materially different relationships. And let me just say that's not to make comment on the quality of the love or affection between two individuals. I think there's a very emotional argument for same-sex marriage that is about recognition. Um, but what I'm talking about is a materially different relationship that I believe is worth a culture preserving between a man and a woman. And yes, it does involve procreation. And it's often said, well, okay, if someone cannot have a child, does that mean they can't get married? No, procreation is not a precondition to marriage, but I do believe that there is um, a you know, materially different relationship. There are a diversity of relationships, and that marriage is worth the retention of a culture. Uh, and there's something important in two people being able to recreate life within the boundaries of one relationship, between the boundaries of one man and one woman, and that is unique. Um, and I think we're, we're um, in danger of losing that relationship if we make that marriage sex neutral. I choose to see the best in those who advocate same-sex marriage. 
and I believe that they do so because they have a vision of Northern Ireland that would be better if same-sex marriage existed. They believe it would be more fair, more equal, more just. As someone who's passionate about marriage uh, between a man and a woman, I think I, I want to see a fair, just, equitable Northern Ireland, but I don't believe that that requires um, same-sex marriage. I think we need to get better and articulating a vision for marriage um, whereby we are not accused of being homophobic. And we need to be careful in our language. And I think we do need to learn lessons to be careful around that. I think what we're seeing is the conflation of marriage, equality, um, sexuality and love into this debate. And we maybe need to separate out what we mean by marriage and what we mean by love or equality. Um, progressivism. Uh, again, this ties into this, but that what, what's, what's to come or what's now is better than what was before. And I think we're seeing that around this debate um, a, a lot more. Another issue, um, pornography. I believe it's one of the biggest challenges, public challenges and, and private challenges to, to marriage. Um, Not for life, a survey in Northern Ireland of um, 15,000 um, school children over, over the past year. And uh, among a thousand 15-year-old boys, 29% use pornography every day, and 56% using at least once a week. And if you think they're 15-year-old boys, in maybe 10, 15 years' time, they might be getting married. Um, and what expectations will they be going into marriage with? What view of their wife will they be going into marriage with? Um, this is a huge issue that's really shaping and changing our culture. And um, I do believe there's a moral dimension to the issue of pornography. And as Christians, I believe it's a sin issue at heart. But there is also a, a public good argument again here that um, pornography is destroying a lot of marriages. Uh, and we need to, I suppose, put things in place um, to try and raise that um, within churches and within wider society as well. Um, I suppose just very generally, we live in a very disposable culture and we only seem to talk about sustainability whenever it comes to the environment. And that's again another huge issue I'd love to do a seminar on, but not today. Um, what about sustainable marriages? We live in unprecedented times of cultural pressure um, on relationships. And how do we build marriages that are going to be robust and sustainable? Um, I think that's a huge issue for the church and again for our society more generally. Um, technology, and it's already just been hinting about um, Facebook and social media, but also screen time. How often are you sitting there in the living room, TV's on, iPad, phone, and you're there in body, but you're not there in spirit. You're not there in your mind. You're not, you're not there with your spouse or your children, maybe. Um, and again, just flagging that up, that um, I also think there are public dimensions to some of this. If, if marriage is a public good and a public institution, then we, we really need to get serious about how we um, protect, defend, model better marriages. So uh, those are some of the kind of um, threats, I suppose, I see. And they're not, uh, it's not exhaustive. Um, but what are the opportunities? As I said, I think we live in a, a culture where relationships generally are under enormous pressure. Um, and we have an amazing opportunity if we believe in a, a relational God who transformed our identity, our relationships, and um, 
he is a, a ratio of God within himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, made us form a relationship with him and, and calls us to radically new identities, radically new relationships with those around us. Well, that, our, our relationships must look different in some way uh, as parents, as neighbours, uh, as um, in community relationships and as marriages. And so there's a, an amazing opportunity to live out radically different relationships um, and, and I think that's, that's something we need to grasp. Um, Scott's been talking about uh, a radical covenant love, a radical rugged, rugged uh, covenant love. And I believe, again, in a disposable culture, that that um, radical covenant commitment is something that really stands out and is really different. Um, I think, as I said, marriage is being reduced to a contract. We're seeing the rise of prenuptial agreements. Um, the idea that um, divorce is, is much more commonplace and much more easily accessible. Um, in America, it can actually be granted pretty much instantaneously. Here, there's still sort of a two-year limit. Uh, you, you can't get divorced until you've been married for at least two years, and then certain conditions are, are met. Um, but we are moving towards a much more instantaneous divorce culture. Um, and you know, reducing of marriage to a piece of paper it's often joked about, but we are living in a culture where marriage is being reduced to that. How do we live in ways? Can we seek out ways to show the importance of covenant commitment and the marriage is? Um, I also want to say at that point, though, I'm not, I'm not living in some bubble where Christian marriages are like Hollywood marriages. and They look amazing on the outside, um, but often they're only, only then an inch deep. Um, unfortunately, quite a lot of my friends have been divorced. Uh, Christian friends as well and um, I think we need to face up to that as church how do we deal compassionately um, with these really difficult situations uh, and always hold out the hope for redemption but how do we call people to a commitment which journeys through maybe betrayal maybe a loss of a feeling of love for the other person if we want to have radically different relationships to those around us how, how do we do that well? I think the divorce rate in evangelicals in America there is about a percentage point difference between those of no faith. Uh, and that's not a place where I think that marriages are being honoured by the, by the Christian community. Um, separation of church and state in marriages. So if the cultural and state definition of marriage is going in quite a different direction to the Christian understanding of marriage, I think that presents a real opportunity for the church as to how we understand, perform, celebrate marriages. So if my daughter, who's uh, coming three, if she comes to me in 25 years' time and says, Dad, I want to get married, and by then maybe marriage has been redefined or looks completely different um, to the, the, the world around us, um, is my church going to say to her, okay, we will marry you, but you still need to get a, um, a wedding certificate from the state? before we will marry you, even though we actually as church don't really agree with the state definition of marriage. Now that opens up a whole can of worms that again another seminar could go into. Um, but are we as churches going to um, behold to the state's definition of marriage if we still make people um, get married in the eyes of the state before we will bless their marriage or, or marry them in the eyes of the church? I think that's a big, big ethical or a big question that we have to look at. Um, Finally then, I suppose just um, 
Yeah, sorry, I'm just skipping a few things here because we only have time for questions. I think it's just getting back to that point of um, if we see marriage as having a common good, then we're actually on mission whenever we're in our marriages. Um, I think marriages are an amazing place for discipleship and witness. So whenever we're in our homes, in our communities, that we are witnessing to the relationship between Christ and the church. And it's not something I think about a lot as I'm talking to my wife, as we're in the supermarket, as, we, um, as I'm talking about my wife to other people. Am I witnessing to um, Christ in the church? It's really hard to change a culture. There's so many people in a plural society pulling in different directions, and that's healthy and good at times. But it's really hard to change or influence a culture, even where in Northern Ireland around 30% of people um, would hold to conservative Christian sort of values around, around marriage, maybe more. Um, but you can change the culture in, in smaller environments. So whenever it comes to your home, your office, whenever it comes to your church, your cul-de-sac, you can have a big impact on the culture of that place. And I think marriage is a, a really important way that we uh, show discipleship and witness as well. So sorry, that's a little bit scattered, uh, but it hopefully um, flags up a few issues I think are of public concern whenever we think about marriage as well. That's it. Thanks, David. Um, if we just bite the rest of the panel, then I'll come and take a seat. Um, we just wanted to leave um, some time, just a few minutes, um, if anyone has any questions they would like to address. Um, if you just want to pop up your hand, and I'll, I'll bring the mic up to you if anyone has any questions. Could I? Yeah. If I might add something that... Uh, one of the things that Hilary and I have practiced over many years now is praying together. You, you probably know the saying, the family that prays together stays together. Well, last Sunday night uh, we pray together, and we're in bed, and we usually take it in turns, more or less. And on one occasion, uh, Hilary was praying, but there was no amen from beside her, and she found her husband was fast asleep. Uh, worse was to come. On one occasion, uh, I was praying, and I paused and didn't continue <laughs> because I'd fallen asleep in the middle of my own breath. <laughs> so we, we, we try to keep it uh, on the short side, and uh, it's very often about family and things of that kind. It's great, great advice. Um, if, if no one has any questions, I think... Um, does anyone have any questions? No, I think, um, yeah. How do, you, how do you respond to, sorry, to non-Christians that say we're not going to get married, we're just going to live together, and that's our commitment? Where do you come? Because you can't just say what the Bible says. That means nothing to them. Well, certainly the comparison, I can't give you the actual statistics, but the durability of marriage, which unfortunately is not all that great today, is much better than living people living together. It, it is quite a big, big difference. So that would be a factor. And that comes out of the statistics in Somerset House, so it's not Christian-based. It actually works better. Um, the other thing is maybe uh, I'm thinking like my own sister, you know, lived with um, her, uh, who is not her husband, um, but there, there can be a, a sliding 
uh, or deciding sort of thing. So if someone's getting married, there's a decision there. People often end up living together and they almost slide into it um, without a decision being made about the commitment to the relationship in the long term. Now, not always, but there can be more of a sliding into an arrangement where you end up living together without that commitment there to the relationship for good or for bad for long term. Um, and, and even just that conversation around so you're living together, are you, you, are you committed for... And, and, and again, we find it hard to talk about other people's relationships or ask those difficult questions. And maybe we need to get better at having more relational conversations. Um, but that, that slide-to-side thing is often a feature of cohabitation um, and, of, and often one of the reasons why um, the statistics are the way they are. Then at some point down the line, uh, one, one party may decide, actually, I'm not really sure I signed up to all this. Um, it's quite different dynamics. And from a counselling point of view, <clears throat> the scars that are left, um, then ongoing, the deeper the relationship has been, living relationship, but when it's off and on all the time, then there's a series of scars. I think the question to me is, should you say anything? Someone in the family moves in with someone. A lot of it is financial. I chat to four couples that all live together quite regularly. It's financial as well. Mm. Should we say anything? So the question there was, um, if two people we know yeah. start living together outside of marriage, should we say anything um, yeah. as a Christian? Or do we leave it until they speak to us later, perhaps? I think there comes a moment where, I mean... Jesus with the woman in Samaria, um, he, he knew that she was living with her current um, partner and had had five husbands before, or four, four before. Um, and um, he, he starts in a moment or an interaction of, of compassion, speaking to uh, a Samaritan woman at the well. And so this is maybe in one encounter, but we may take months or, or years sometimes to, to have these engagements. But Jesus models out, in my mind, compassion, a moment of integrity or, or um, truthfulness, and then there was a transformation. And I suppose that in, in our encounters, that's what I would tr- seek to do. So there's a, a compassion, there's a, um, it's maybe not appropriate in the, the moment they tell you they're moving in that you come straight down at that moment. Maybe it is if you know them well, but <laughs> at that point. Um, there is a moment though where I think if they, if you know them well and they respect you and you respect them, there will become a moment of truthful conversation, and then praying for a, an encounter and a transformative encounter with Jesus um, would yeah. would be my thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's very important. Like, um, I believe if God instructs something for humanity in the Scripture, it isn't just good for the church; it's good for human beings in general. And as lovers of our world, and if we have a desire to reach our world, we should desire to be preaching the gospel to them. But what's so important in public engagement, especially in marriage, but with any issue, is the tone that we take in doing that. Is our tone conveying compassion? Is it conveying love? Because there's there's two ways to say one message. And one way can totally alienate someone, and another way can can really convey to them the compassion and unconditional love of God. Um, so yeah, I would just want to highlight the tone of how we respond to these issues is so vital. 
Does anyone have a question to finish? Yep, go ahead. I was just going to ask, could you offer any words of advice or guidance on how to differentiate between um, love and marriage within a homosexual relationship? So we talked, we talked about how um, marriage, love, equality and sexuality can get all kind of bundled up in the same thing. And it's just how to offer words of love, but in making the difference between this is what marriage is and this is what love is. Because I know that's quite a big thing of love should win, love should win within a, within a homosexual relationship and how you... Um, yeah, again, I think we live in an age where a sound bite... Um, everything's reduced to a tweet, a tweet. So love wins. Hashtag love wins. Uh, it's almost like right. That's argument done. You know, it's all about love. And marriage is all about love, but not in the way it's maybe being presented. And what I from uh, the last number of years, I've been doing a number of engagements with Rainbow with a number of organisations. And last week I was on radio talking about marriage equality. And even there, marriage equality, um, the the idea there is if you oppose that, then you're anti-equality. Um, so I prefer to talk about same-sex marriage than, than <coughs> marriage equality, because it's a very clever use of, of term. But um, we, I try to engage in a way that is respectful, that acknowledges um, that... I, I have views on marriage um, and homosexuality that are influenced certainly by my, my Christian faith. Um, but being able to note the two people that whenever I oppose same-sex marriage, I am not saying gay people are bad, gay people cannot love each other, they cannot be affectionate. They can't, you know, but what is heard often is, is almost that's what I'm saying. Um, and it is, it's about again tone and it's about being able to talk about marriage as marriage and try and unpick all those things that have been bound up together um, I've been doing this job four and a half years, it's a really controversial issue, really hard to talk about in a very short space of time I think with family, with friends, with people, with colleagues um, it's not all going to happen in one conversation and I think there needs to be um, you know, an understanding of what we mean by certain terms um, and that yes, whenever we say we oppose same-sex marriage or we don't believe that's best for society it don't, don't hear that we don't uh, you know, dislike people, we don't um, you know, think they can be um, loving and kind and, and those sorts of things and unpicking some of that I think is, is important Thank you very much. Um, thanks for your questions there, guys, and thank you for, for coming and, and being part of this seminar. Um, Michael, could you just close quickly in prayer for us? Yeah. Well, the, the theory is very easy, and sometimes the practice in marriage is far more difficult, and uh, we pray for each other right now for grace and resolve to be the very best for each other that we can be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.